A key role of the modern-day intensivist is the appropriate allocation of resources, and in particular, suitability for admission. In this, the first of our series of podcasts entitled Whose Bed Is It Anyway?, Dr James O'Byrne joins us to discuss the outcomes of patients with cirrhosis who require ICU-level care. James is a consultant hepatologist at the Royal Free Hospital in the UK. He has an interest in the intensive care of liver patients and research interests in acute liver failure, variceal bleeding and transplant outcomes. I began by asking him about the outcomes of cirrhotic liver disease patients. James, it's fair to say that cirrhotic liver disease has an exceptionally poor reputation in the ICU world. Do you think that that position is justified? Do you know, I, I don't. I think historically ITU clinicians have not unreasonably seen patients with cirrhosis go onto the ITU and have a dismal outcome. But actually, if you break down those patients into different etiologies, different severities of liver disease, and importantly, the different indications for why they end up on the intensive care unit, you actually begin to tease out that, that patients aren't as homogenous as you might think they are. And in fact, patients with cirrhosis are a heterogeneous group of patients that have completely different outcomes depending on their etiology and indeed the reason for the deterioration. So I suppose it's rather simplistic to, su- to suggest that all patients with cirrhosis on ITU have a poor outcome. It's a bit like saying all patients with cancer have a poor outcome. You know, there are different, different types of cancer that have excellent outcome and, and some that are very, very poor. And I think part of the job of the hepatologist is to try and sort of enter into a partnership with the ITU clinician so that they can understand what the real prognosis of that individual patient is. Um, What do we know about the outcomes of patients who do get admitted to intensive care with cirrhosis? Well, it depends whether you look at hospital ITU mortality, hospital mortality, or or one-year mortality. It's fair to say that um, if you look across the board, the ITU mortality of patients on the intensive care unit is in the order of around 40 to 50%. Um, Hospital mortality is somewhat higher than that, uh, reflecting that sometimes the patients are discharged from the, from the intensive care unit and suffer more complications and maybe don't, um, aren't readmitted. But, but if you look across the, across the board, the average mortality is around about 40%. Um, which is higher than you would imagine the the average mortality for any medical ICU patient would be. But it's not, it's certainly nowhere near 100%. So the idea of not admitting these patients to ITU because the outcome is is, is appalling is, isn't justified, really. Um, when you get out to 12 months, then the, certainly for alcoholic patients, then the survival is very poor. And I think that reflects access of patients to liver transplant services and alcohol support, etc. And that's often patchy, certainly in the UK. And, you know, you can imagine that you survive, uh, um, if you end up with a complication of cirrhosis bad enough to land you on the intensive care unit, it really is a sign that your liver liver function is very, very poor and, and literally the next complication is likely to be your last one. So for somebody who's a survivor of ITU with cirrhosis, then you really should be start thinking whether this patient is a transplant candidate or is there something else that you can do to improve the prognosis of the patient, perhaps place a tips or better treatment of encephalopathy, etc. What, what are the sorts of conditions that patients with advanced cirrhosis uh, develop that require ICU admission? The most, over, the, the commonest, I guess, 
presentation is of a patient with cirrhosis who's probably got a bit of ascites, impaired synthetic function, maybe a bit jaundiced, who then picks up an infection and starts to develop um, multiple organ dysfunction or failure, um, be that hypotension, more encephalopathy, a bit of renal impairment, acute kidney injury and oliguria. And so the, the patient sort of goes onto the intensive care unit. Normally the trigger from that is sepsis. And um, and and those patients, in fact, in our in our cohort of over 500 patients, are the most numerous. And in fact, these these patients certainly, if they need more than one or two organ support, do pretty poorly. However, the the next biggest group of patients that end up on the ITU, in contrast, are the patients who are there because of complications of a variceal hemorrhage. So they may get admitted to ITU with bleeding and that even if that's complicated by needing vasopressor or in fact um, a bit of renal impairment they actually do really well and in fact the variceal bleeds have an excellent outcome on uh, ITU so they even if, if they go on to the ITU and need vasopressor or another or a single organ failure their survival is in the excess of 70% in our experience so so variceal hemorrhage is an excellent indication for a cirrhotic to go to ITU probably the best indication is uh, a patient who just needs airway management because they have severe encephalopathy and and certainly in the absence of any other organ failure, it'd be very unusual for one of those patients to die. And normally, they they would just wake up within a couple of days and be able to extubate them and get them back to the ward. The pressure then is is uh, is on the ward team and the hepatologist to make sure that the encephalopathy is optimally tran- uh, opt- optimally treated and the patient is evaluated for transplant so it doesn't happen again. Um, so you know the 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 mode of presentation um, the. Uh, the complication itself has an impact on the prognosis, and I, I guess the worst possible picture is of somebody who's been on the ward for quite a while, who's malnourished, who's gradually slipped into uh, renal failure because of sepsis, and and those patients, you know, if, we're, if I'm faced with those patients on the ward who've been failing to thrive on the ward and have deteriorated despite active treatment, and then we're asking for an intensive care unit bed, you've got to expect that the outcome for those individuals is going to be quite poor. I guess one of the other factors that we, we all take into account is the quality of the patient's life should they survive ICU. And it's something that intensivists don't see as much as, as people who work with uh, outpatients. What is life like for somebody with severe cirrhotic liver disease? Well, it's very difficult, isn't it, to measure, to measure quality of life. You know, somebody who, say, has a variceal hemorrhage uh, in the context of cirrhosis, often it's their first presentation. They may have been perfectly well prior to um, prior to this event. Um, they go on to the intensive care unit. You know, once they get discharged, then often if the liver recompensates, then they can have a, a pretty normal life and quality of life. Somebody who's maybe um, got more advanced uh, synthetic liver failure with a high bilirubin, you know, they may be malnourished, they'll be fatigued. Quality of life is pretty bad, but you know, these are the patients that should be looked at as potential transplant candidates. And, and in fact, the, the, the people who were, it's more difficult to measure quality of life are the alcoholics because, you know, if they manage to stop drinking, and, and actually sometimes, 
you know, with the right support, you can really turn around somebody with very advanced liver disease. And, you know, six months later, you would hardly recognize them. You know, they're back at work. They're, um, they've put on all the muscle again. They look, they look very, very different. And that's why I think for somebody who's a first presentation with alcoholic liver disease, even if they're in pretty shocking state and they have um, even renal failure or, or, or vasopressive requirement, these are individuals where it's actually worthwhile being very aggressive um, with ICU support because actually in the, with, without, if you manage to get them off alcohol, then the liver can actually, re, can actually regenerate. And, and even though they'll be left with cirrhosis, they'll be left with normal liver function and therefore a normal quality of life. Um, you, you've argued that there are certain groups and uh, that not all cirrhotic patients are the same. How do you go about evaluating these patients? What are the signs that somebody might do well? I think you, somebody with a variceal hemorrhage, somebody with encephalopathy, uh, even in the context of a, a, another organ failure, I think these would be candidates where I would push very hard for them to go to the intensive care unit. Somebody who is a, an acute presentation with, say, sepsis related to pneumonia or bacterial peritonitis who has associated multiple organ dysfunction or failure, again, I would argue very strongly that that patient should go to ICU for at least a trial of multiple organ support because I think it, when you have sepsis as a target, it's um, a, a potentially treatable target, then, you know, it very quickly with the right management, fluid resuscitation, the right antibiotics given quickly, you can actually turn people around quite quickly. Where the patients where I would be less willing to push my IT colleagues to accept are those patients who've been on the ward for, say, a couple of weeks with, you know, a constant sort of cycle of, of, of complications like infections, a little bleed, who just really aren't thriving and then have another complication and, and literally they'll they go into ITU from, from the ward. They may be malnourished. I think these patients do very, very badly. For instance, I'd be happy to, um, to, to push for hemofiltration for somebody who came acutely through the ED with a pneumonia, hypotension in the context of cirrhosis and sepsis, whereas somebody who'd been on the ward for, for two weeks with complications of ascites who's gone into a to renal failure, um, I wouldn't push that hard for because the chances of you turning that situation around are pretty slim, in fact. Um, so, you know, the, the patients who really, I think, shouldn't go to the intensive care unit are the very malnourished who've been languishing on the ward for a while, patients who have repeatedly had complications of cirrhosis for, and, um, and continue to drink because you know that that you might get the patient through the through the ICU admission, but ultimately their long-term survival is is pretty poor. And I think it, those are the patients that it's worth a rational decision about the limit of, of care being, being being on the ward. But really, all of the patients are worth worthy of discussion, and um, and certainly my feeling is, and the way we practice in this hospital is that you know the data would suggest that. No matter how sick you are, going on to the intensive care unit with complications of cirrhosis, and you can measure that by SOFA score, if after 48 hours of treatment your SOFA score is still above 12 or 13 in one study, then your outcome almost certainly is going to be death. So we use the SOFA score as a way of prognosticating after a trial of therapy. And our intensive care unit colleagues and our hepatologists are very sensible, and we'll say, well, look, you know, here we are 48 hours down the line, 
SOFA score is still greater than 12, I think we should we should stop there. And um, and sometimes it's difficult to have those conversations with families and other colleagues, but it's supported by the data. There are now two studies um, that, that really show that that is quite a good way of, of maximizing the benefit to those that will benefit, but limiting the 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 duration of treatment for those where it's where it's going to be futile, and that's the way we sort of practice at, at this institution. So just to clarify, there it's a, a dynamic application of the SOFA score that is predictive of that. Um... Absolutely. So you, you you know the the old studies suggested that if you went onto the ICU with a um, with a SOFA score of greater than you know, 10, 12, 15, then you, you you did very badly. But if you actually dissect down into those patients, there are some go onto the intensive care unit very very sick, but actually very quickly respond to treatment. So, you know they're looking 48 hours later, they're off vasopressors, they started to pee again. You know, and and these these patients do very very well. So using a dynamic application of SOFA score allows you to actually really be very, very clear about those patients that are going to do badly. And, you know, it doesn't guarantee that, that the patient who, whose SOFA score improves is going to survive the ITU admission, but those are the patients where it's really worth putting those resources and, uh, and continuing multiple organ support. James, I think if you surveyed most intensivists, um, they would feel that renal failure developing in somebody with advanced cirrhosis was a harbinger of disaster. Is that a realistic mm -hmm. um, concern? Uh, I think it is, uh, but I think it's the context of that renal failure that's important as well. Um, renal failure associated with an acute insult, say like alcoholic hepatitis, is, is reversible. And um, Whereas the paterenal syndrome that tends to develop in patients with advanced cirrhosis, particularly in the context of ascites and malnutrition, is often irreversible. So I think you need to look at the context, the rapidity of, of presentation of the renal impairment, its likely precipitance. And it's very easy to label all renal impairment in patients with um, cirrhosis as a paterenal syndrome, and, and the paterenal syndrome is a, a condition that's associated with a very poor outcome. But if you actually drill down into the, into the causes of, um, of renal failure, often it's not a paterenal syndrome. Often it's acute kidney injury related to dehydration, related to sepsis, and, and you know, that has a very different outcome, and, and that's been studied in a, in a number of trials now where you can see a very different outcome between renal failure associated with hepatorenal syndrome, with infection, with hypovolemia, or even with uh, the acute kidney injury that sometimes alcoholics get from IgA nephropathy, for instance, in the context of an acute insult. So, you know, it's important not to be too simplistic and interpret every elevated creatinine in somebody with a cirrhosis as, as, uh, as a paterenal syndrome and associated with a poor prognosis. Sure, it's a, marker, it's, a, it's a marker of advanced disease and it's a risk factor for mortality. But actually, again, making sure that you know exactly what the cause of that renal failure is helps you determine what the likely prognosis is. And I would have no problem filtering somebody, say, who'd presented in the context of sepsis with hypovolemia and, um, and, and, you know, with an acute presentation of, of their renal failure, you know, three weeks ago they had a normal creatinine and now they've got a creatinine of 300. That is not a paterenal syndrome. That is acute kidney injury, and you would have no problem with providing renal support for somebody in the absence of cirrhosis. So I think you, you need to apply the same sort of um, the same sort of rules to those with cirrhosis, with the caveat that overall the outcome are likely to be poorer, but not hopeless. 
Having excluded other possibilities such as pre-renal, renal failure and, uh, and sepsis, what is the current thinking on the ideal management of hepatorenal syndrome? It all comes down to volume expansion and, uh, and, and a vasoconstrictor. And indeed, everybody, terlipressin was the drug that really revolutionized the management of hepatorenal syndrome. And people used to talk about the way terlipressin worked as a splanchnic vasoconstrictor and reversed the um, decreased, effective, uh, decreased effective arterial blood volume that patients with cirrhosis get. But in fact, a recent study comparing noradrenaline with terlipressin shows that the outcomes for type 1 HRS are exactly the same. So I would say that what, what you need to do to treat HRS is to make sure the patient's adequately volume resuscitated and give them a vasoconstrictor if, if, they, if they need it. And, uh, you know, that certainly would be what we do. So if the patient's on the intensive care unit, we use noradrenaline as the vasopressor of choice. If the patient's on the ward, we'll use terlipressin. But you're trying to achieve the same thing. You're volume expanding and you're providing um, uh, and you're, you're increasing the mean arterial pressure and therefore presumably renal perfusion. You mentioned infection before and it's, uh, it seems there's a paradox with infection that it provides you with a remediable target yet also portends a worse outcome. What, what's your view on the presence of infection? There's no doubt that infection is an ominous, ominous sign in patients with cirrhosis. So in patients with um, even milder degrees of cirrhosis, so without much decompensation, if they get an infection, they usually have a worse outcome uh, in the long term than patients with the, even sometimes worse stage cirrhosis but without infection. And we don't really understand why that is. There's certainly work going on at the moment looking at neutrophil dysfunction in cirrhosis, monocyte dysfunction in cirrhosis, disorders of the innate immune system. And it's becoming quite clear that there are as your liver disease progresses, you acquire functional defects in your um, innate and adaptive immunity that predispose you to bacterial infection. Um, and, and those bacterial infections can trigger a decompensation of your liver disease and, and ultimately end, end the patient on ITU. And this is why we, we have a fairly low threshold for providing um, intravenous antibiotics for patients with complications of cirrhosis, even where there's no direct evidence of infection. And a particular example which I think supports that is patients with variceal hemorrhage. If you give patients with variceal hemorrhage intravenous or even non-absorbable quinolones um, in the context of their variceal bleed, then you reduce the mortality and you reduce the re-bleeding. And the assumption is that patients with um, cirrhosis get uh, transient bacteremias, um, LPS and the portal circulation can lead to rises in portal pressure, which then leads to portal hypertensive bleeding. So addressing that by providing uh, prompt antibiotic uh, treatment in patients with complications of cirrhosis can actually improve the prognosis. So on the one hand, yes, patients with cirrhosis are prone to infections and those, infe and those infections worse than the prognosis, but also if you, if you understand that, that patients can have infection without demonstrating overt sepsis or even being culture positive and you treat those patients with antibiotics, you can actually affect an, an improvement in survival. One of the most ominous of those infections, of course, is spontaneous bacterial peritonitis. Mm. There's been some work around albumin and volume expansion in that context too. Can you explain what the, the mechanisms of that might be? <laughs> Um, it's debated, in fact. Um, the, 
the, the study, the, the pivotal study in this area was published in 2000 in the New England Journal of Medicine and showed very nicely that patients who received albumin on day one and day three or after the diagnosis of bacterial peritonitis did very well compared to patients who didn't receive supplemental albumin in terms of less renal failure and indeed less mortality. It wasn't clear from the paper exactly how much fluid, however, the control group got. And I think in my mind, I think it's, I don't think albumin has magic properties. Um, it may do, uh, but I don't think those have been proven. And certainly um, albumin has supporters who will attest to the fact that it binds nitric oxide, it modulates protein uh, nitrosization in the, in the cardiac uh, muscle and improves cardiac output in patients with cirrhosis, etc. And I think these are interesting lines of inquiry, but for me, I think it's not so much the magic of albumin in, in SBP, it's giving fluid to, to maintain um, tissue perfusion in patients with, with sepsis. So I, at the moment, the evidence would suggest that you need to give albumin day one, day three, and, and I guess until there's a, a better study showing that any fluid will do, you have to do that. But I think it's more about volume resuscitation than albumin itself. Just returning to SOFA score for a moment, um, yeah. you mentioned that scoring systems have, have got a, an application in determining outcome. Uh, is SOFA the best score or are there other scores that can be used? There, there are other scores. One can look at Mel score, Charles Pugh score, lots of different disease severity scores. Apache 2, etc. And often these are quite complicated to calculate and don't really help you as the man on the spot with a sick patient. Um, MELD score would seem intuitively to be the best uh, score because it gives you the creatinine and the bilirubin, which gives you an overall picture of maybe the severity of, uh, of the liver disease and perhaps um, because creatinine is important prognostically, that would be, be a good good thing to use. But in fact, if you start looking at these uh, scores in real life in real patients, you find that Charles Pugh score and Mel score perform reasonably okay, but the best score by far in terms of area under the receiver operating characteristic curve um, for predicting survival or death is is the is the SOFA score, and that's been consistently shown in lots of studies now that that SOFA. Is, is the best score at predicting mortality. And I think that's because it includes bilirubin, it includes platelet count, it includes oxygenation, et cetera, and, and other markers of organ dysfunction with your, your vasopressors and, and, of course, conscious level. So as a global indicator of both the severity of the liver disease and the severity of the organ dysfunction, SOFA appears to be the best, certainly, um, in, in clinical practice. James, you referred to the issue of uh, transplant in decompensated chronic liver disease. And I'm just wondering, in a global sense, what are the, the types of patients who would be eligible for this? This is an ongoing area of debate. On the one hand, patients who are transplanted from an ICU environment with cirrhosis do very poorly. Um, so if you've got somebody who's vasopressor dependent with cirrhosis on an, IT, on an ITU and you put that patient on the list and you get an organ for them and transplant them, you can't really expect more than 50-60% one-year survival. And in the current era of organ shortage, one has to wonder whether that's a good use of an organ when the expected one-year survival for somebody who's less unwell would be in excess of 90%. 
So the people that we would, you know, you obviously can't transplant everybody, but it's often very difficult to evaluate somebody in the context of a critical illness with cirrhosis for transplant. You can't transplant them from the ITU bed. What you have to do, I think, is is try and get them through that ICU admission and they get off the intensive care unit, that's the time when you just actively ask yourself, is this patient a transplant candidate? And then the answer is yes, i.e. they're not actively drinking or or they've been evaluated by a professional that uh, has estimated their risk of return to drinking as being quite low. They have no obvious cardiovascular contraindications to liver transplantation, such as advanced coronary artery disease or valvular disease. They're, they, they're not... Um, completely deconditioned and malnourished, then these are patients who should be prioritized for assessment and and on the, and and listed for transplantation. Now, there's no guarantee that you would get an organ, but um, one thing's for sure, if you've been sick enough with a complication of cirrhosis to end up on the intensive care unit, then the chances are without a transplant that you're going to end up uh, with another complication of cirrhosis within the next year, and you may not be as lucky next time. So it's about getting the patients off the ICU and then evaluating them in a fairly rapid way to, to, to be able to determine which patients are likely to be candidates and which aren't. So, James, in summary, who should we be admitting to ICU? We can't admit everybody, but neither by the same, uh, using the same logic, should we deny access to everybody with cirrhosis. The patients who should go to, to ICU are those patients with encephalopathy, either on its own or with a single organ failure, all variceal bleeders, and selected patients with multiple organ failure in the context of cirrhosis, where there's a very clear precipitant, the tempo of the illness has been rapid, there's a potentially reversible component, such as a, a focus of sepsis or indeed alcoholic hepatitis. Those are the patients that should go to ICU. The patients that shouldn't go to ICU are patients who've relapsed to alcohol use on a number of occasions despite professional advice, the very malnourished and the frail, and those patients who've deteriorated in the context of a ward admission with a constant um, cycle of, of decompensation and, and ultimately developing, say, sepsis and renal failure. Those patients, I think, are the ones that give intensivists the, 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 the problem because they they they're often um, they've often been on the ward for quite a while. There's been a lot of investment for time in the clinical team, but actually those patients do appallingly badly if you admit them to the ICU. So we're looking for patients with clear precipitants, variceal hemorrhage, encephalopathy, single organ failure in the context of those um, complications do extremely well. Um, the patients that do badly are those patients who've deteriorated after a prolonged hospital admission. James O'Byrne, thanks for your time. Thank you. If you enjoyed today's podcast, why not check out our websites, Critique and Crit Nurse. Our websites are leading providers of online critical care education and include podcasts, journal clubs, online presentations, modules and much, much more. You can also join our free blog to help you stay up to date. Our websites are found at www.crit-iq.com and www.crit-nurse.com You can follow us on Facebook and Twitter or visit us at the iTunes store. While you're there, check out our data interpretation and CT interpretation apps. Critique. 
making critical care education easier.